my third episode of this podcast, discussed identity politics, a real plague on our current situation when it comes to being able to truly do what's best for us as a people and for our communities. But we now live in a time where we are not identified as individuals, each with our own background, beliefs, and traits, but as groups defined by immutable characteristics, like race, for example, all while being told that we can now change some of those very characteristics simply by claiming to be something we are not. Where the vice president's greatest accomplishment, based on what I've read so far about her performance, is being a female minority, we are now also being told that if she so choose, she could now claim to be male. What is clung to, however, even as we are told only we can define what and who we are, is some idea that once declared that thing we claim to be means that we can now be put in a group, an identity box, on which all policy choices should be made. It is no longer Americans debating and trying to do what is best for America, but these claimed identities that determine what must be best for certain groups, no matter what the people, the individuals in those groups really want. None of identity politics is good for uniting the nation. I hope you enjoy listening to this episode if you've not heard it before. And even if you had, I hope you enjoy listening again. And don't forget, new episodes will be back next week on June 22nd. I am Solas Veritas, and this is the Defending American Exceptionalism podcast. It appears many Americans have forgotten what makes America exceptional. This podcast is here to remind them. The greatest country on earth has been so successful that it may now be suffering from that very success. The lack of any real suffering in recent decades has made it all too easy for people to criticize and malign the greatest country ever to have been established by man. While sitting comfortably in their centrally heated homes, watching big screen TVs, interacting with their fellow men primarily through social media, and experiencing life events via virtual reality video games. This podcast is meant to serve as a reminder and tutorial on the unique and special form of government our founders created and to explain the real history, purpose, and structure of America. It hopes to offer a counter to the falsities gaining popularity in the past 20 years, probably even longer, that America is no better than any other country, no different and no more. types of discussions, stay tuned. This episode is being recorded on January 27th, 2021. It is scheduled to be released on February 2nd, Groundhog Day, which seems only fitting since just like Bill Murray's character in the movie Groundhog Day, I feel like I'm waking up to the same policies the left has been pushing for decades, despite the proven failures of those policies. It's as if we're just going to keep trying them again and again and hoping for a different result. But now they're going even farther than they ever have before, threatening irreversible damage to the United States. Episode 3, Identity Politics, Segregation for the 21st Century. Martin Luther King Jr. made it clear that his fight for civil rights had a specific goal. I look to a day when people will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Oh, how the country has strayed from that dream. We cannot ignore our history of slavery and racism, or that racism and discrimination of all kinds still exists. But today's efforts to convince people that no progress has been made since King fought for civil rights is wrong and damaging. 
and similar damage is being done to the progress of equality for women and for other civil rights efforts. Instead of seeking a society of inclusion and cohesion, a movement is taking over the country that seeks to separate us by segregating us into identity groups. Today's identity politics, far from seeking an equal playing field for all people, is instead a way to divide and separate us. A term not even known until the 1970s, and not really mainstream until recent years, identity politics divides our country into groups. Where once the nation sought to be a melting pot into which people of any race, gender, religion, national origin, and experience could all become Americans, sharing the same principles, now our basic principles are under attack from within. Constant claims that traditional American values are undesirable, or possibly even evil, are the basis on which a move now exists, a move that has been startlingly successful, not to allow us to be judged by the content of our character, but to require we each be judged by our identity. And it gets even stranger. I can't even keep track how many different identity categories there may be. Men, women, men who claim to be women, women who claim to be men, people who identify as both genders or neither, or whose identity changes at whim, people of various races and those who purport to be one race but are actually another, white supremacists, minorities who others claim are actually white supremacists, the rich, the poor, liberal, conservative, capitalist, socialist, communist, white, black, Latino, Asian, straight, gay, bisexual, transgender, Christian, Jew, Muslim, atheist, the list could go on and on. Karl Marx would certainly be proud of this class consciousness. And why does any of this matter? Where did the time go when employers were encouraged to hire the best person with no consideration of these identities? Where are the 1960s, 70s, and 80s feminists who fought for equality for women, only now to turn around and seek equal rights for a biological man who identifies as a woman to be able to compete directly with biological women in things such as athletic competition? Where are the old-school feminists to stand up for the rights of the elementary school girl who is now forced to share a restroom or locker room with biological boys? And where are the members of the left constantly clamoring science when it comes to discussing issues of gender. By the way, guys, according to science, there are only two. Why divide ourselves into so many groups and demand to be recognized by our group membership? Such an approach only serves to divide us and moves us in the opposite direction of equality. Equality of opportunity requires that one's group identity not be a deciding factor, that we each be judged on our merit and not on these identifying factors. But that's not the direction the left is moving the country. Let's start with gender. Once a pretty clear biological fact, we are now being told that gender is fluid. It is not scientifically determined, and it can change. When no one can be identified by his or her biological gender, and where we all, science be damned, can simply choose to be another gender by mere magic or wishful thinking or worse, horribly deforming medical abuse and treatments, why do such things as the election of the first female vice president even matter? How can we live in a society that both claims you can be a different gender than you were born as and claims that a glass ceiling exists that keeps one gender, women, down? What if all the current male company CEOs, governors, athletes, and the like just now claim to be women? Would that be the end of any divide between the sexes? Of course not, because this whole movement serves no one but those who seek to strip from us any individuality and categorize us only by our political identity. 
read any news article about the hiring or appointment or rise of someone of a minority race or a transgender individual or a woman, and you'll find that often the headline or most notable thing said about that person is that identity, and often little is said about the person's actual qualifications for the position. That's a disservice to those people. A quick look at media headlines on such individuals provides a clear example of this point. Pennsylvania's health secretary was nominated by President Biden to be assistant HHS secretary, and the headlines read as follows. Biden health nominee to be first transgender federal official confirmed by Senate, Forbes, Forbes magazine. Rachel Levine, transgender woman, picked by Biden as assistant HHS secretary, the Washington Post. LA Times, Politico, NBC, and press services like the AP and UPI, and more all led with the nominee's identity, not with her qualifications or past successes. Even conservative news sources fall into the identity politics trap. CNS News headline, Biden nominates Pennsylvania's transgender health secretary to be assistant HHS secretary. And the New York Post, Rachel Levine, tapped for health post, could be first openly transgender Fed official. Former presidential candidate Pete Buttigieg, soon to be the head of the Transportation Department, is not much different in the way he's been treated in the press. No one can explain what qualifications he has to handle federal transportation issues, but it appears he is qualified and celebrated solely because of his identity, because he is gay, touted, in fact, as the first gay cabinet member. As a side note, of course, the media and others appear to want to erase the fact that he's not the first gay cabinet member, since Richard Grinnell served as acting national security director under President Trump, but that's besides the point. And in just the past few days, as interesting things were afoot on Wall Street regarding a group of small traders working to upset large hedge funds, when asked if the new administration had any thoughts or was going to take any action on the issue, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki answered not with an answer, but by reminding the reporters that the new Treasury Secretary was the first woman to head that department. That may be an interesting fact, but it's not relevant to the question. And some years ago, Justice Sotomayor stirred up issues of identity politics when in a speech she gave prior to her nomination to the highest court, she essentially claimed her gender and race made her more qualified than some others to judge. What she actually said was, I would hope that a wise Latina woman with the richness of her experiences would more often than not reach a better conclusion than a white male who hasn't lived that life. It was not her accomplishments or legal knowledge she claimed made her qualified to judge, but her gender and race. And we cannot forget that the worst presidential candidate of the 2020 campaign season, the one who couldn't even win or last through the primary in her home state, Kamala Harris, appears to have been selected by Biden as vice president due to two qualifications. She was a minority and a woman. And when I say it appears that's why she was selected, Biden basically outright said it. Following BML protests and riots, Biden said he was looking for someone who was a minority woman as his running mate, and that's what he did, without reference to who might be the best qualified person to fill the job. Identity politics has so taken hold that it appears to encourage even champions of the left to claim to be members of groups to which they don't actually belong in order to gain approval for some being something that's better than a boring white person. Senator Elizabeth Warren claimed for years she was Native American checking that status on various job applications where she surely knew that might give her preferences in hiring. Admittedly, her DNA test did suggest she was somewhere between 164th and 1,028th Native American, but she's hardly the Native Americans any preferential policies were seeking to advance. 
Rachel Dolezal, president of a local NAACP chapter, claimed she was part black when she was not. And perhaps most recently, Jessica Krug, a George Washington University professor, claimed to be of North African and then Afro-Latino origins for years, only recently to admit and apologize that she is not any of those things, but it is, but is a Jewish white woman. These individuals claimed other identities to take advantage of what that would get them. And why? Because the left has made this kind of identity, rather than individualism, qualifications, and content of one's character, the basis for judging worth. So is it any wonder one might grab someone else's identity in order to be worthy of the left's attention and respect? No longer is education, experience, or past success a basis for being qualified for any position or praise. Instead, your qualification must be based on your identity and how you identify. What about those who identify as one thing but are actually another? And why would so many white people identify as some other minority if being a minority is a disadvantage? White people claiming to be of minority lineage, men claiming to be women, it doesn't make sense if the system is so stacked against the members of these very groups. I'm not saying there's not racism or sexism or other kinds of discrimination, but I cannot find any place in our actual systems of government or our laws that embrace or retain any such discriminatory policies other than those that favor minorities. In fact, as the laws in this country currently stand, it may be a benefit to fall into one of these other political identity groups. What is not beneficial is how far the gender identity issue, for example, has been pushed and is being pushed onto our children. Apparently gone are the days where you can tell your children work hard and you can be anything you want to be, or where you tell them this while instilling some sense of reality that no matter how hard some of us try, we will never be supermodels, speed record setters, or other things that take natural talent and ability. Instead, we now tell our children you are whatever you want to be, just by declaring it, with no hard work or effort, or even if what you want to be is literally and scientifically impossible. Gone are the days of acknowledging that girls can like dirt and sports and traditional boy things without that meaning the girl actually identifies as a boy, or where a boy who loves his mother dresses up in her clothes and shoes for fun while still being very much all boy. Gone is childhood, imagination, and creativity in this world of identity politics. Imagine going through puberty at a time where your every move, fashion choice, statement, and action is interpreted as some sign of your real identity. Author and Wall Street Journal writer Abigail Schreier wrote a book cataloging all the damage being done to young girls as a result of this assault on biological gender and its push for irrational gender identity theory. For writing honestly about this subject, Schreier found her book removed from various sales platforms and herself seriously criticized for her bigotry. But far from being in any way bigoted, Schreier sought to expose facts about what is happening with our children and what did she actually uncover. Gender dysphoria, the condition of feeling one is actually another gender, is skyrocketing among young girls. But why? Transgenderism is popular. It provides a teenager with an identity that makes the individual noteworthy and noticeable. And what teenager, a painfully awkward time for most of us, doesn't want to be noticed? And if your friend does something, didn't you often want to do it too? Now in the past, that may have meant getting the same haircut or wearing a similar outfit or maybe even trying out for the same extracurricular activity despite having no real interest or skill in it just because your friend did. These kinds of copycat behaviors typically were not dangerous. Certainly they could be if your friend was into drugs or alcohol, but in most situations, this was simply growing up. 
But the trend toward popularizing and encouraging a child, often one who has not even gone through puberty, to identify as a different gender is dangerous, both psychologically and physically. And especially where a child is allowed to seek medical intervention to transition to another gender, a move that cannot be undone, the effects are life-altering and often not in a good way. Schreier's book, Irreversible Damage, The Transgender Craze Seducing Our Daughters, tells exceedingly disturbing stories of the damage being caused by this movement. Yet, giving in to this idea gives these young girls a temporary feeling of identity, and having an identity that sets them apart while at the same time belonging to some group of others is a comforting feeling as a teenager. But they cannot, at that age, understand the long-term ramifications of the decisions they are making. And then there are the hard-fought battles of older generations of feminists fighting for equal funding and support of women's sports, only now to find some of those same women, not all of them, but many of them, supporting a push to allow biological boys who claim to be women to compete against biological women and girls in sports. Let's check out a few examples of how that harms women. Most notable may be the stir caused by two transgender athletes in Connecticut who have been allowed to compete in female high school track events. These athletes, being biologically male, always win. Of course they do. They're boys, and they are physically different from girls. That's more science for you. And their success in track and field takes away success opportunities for actual female athletes who are competing. Where the times posted by these transgender athletes would have won them no titles in boys' sports, by competing against biological girls, they have assured success. As one female Connecticut high school student and athlete, Selena Sewell, said in 2019 about being forced to compete against boys in her track events. We all know the outcome of the race before it even starts. It's demoralizing. I fully support and am happy for these athletes for being true to themselves. They should have the right to express themselves in school. But athletics have always had extra rules to keep the competition fair. So where are the equal rights for women feminists now? And where is the party of science on this issue? It seems the only science the left actually values is social science and social engineering. If being a woman is not a biologically defined term, then why should there be any gender separation in sports at all? The slope is not only a slippery one, but a, but a cliff. Why not throw everyone off it together to compete in all sporting events together and see what happens? The, N uh, the NCAA and some other organizations try to claim they have found a way to make it fair by restricting participation based on testosterone test levels. But drawing those kinds of lines does nothing but make the people in charge feel better. They certainly must know how this, this stacks the deck against actual female athletes. It ignores other genetic differences between men and women. Women are still going to be at a disadvantage even if the biological man or boy's testosterone is lower. A man does not simply become a, less of a man due to a lower testosterone level. Anyone who's ever claimed a glass ceiling on women's success should view this move on women's sports as replacing that ceiling with a concrete roof, impenetrable. So why would anyone push for this kind of thinking? Because again, it seeks to identify people by groups, to segregate them by characteristic, characteristics that in reality serve no purpose but to isolate us from one another. This tribalism of America is not moving toward equality and fairness, but away from it. It is also yet another step in the progressive goal of moving us away from traditional American principles and provides another basis on which to make claims of America's evil nature rather than its good. And this evil apparently stems from whiteness and maleness and some unwillingness to accept the false narrative of more than two biological genders. 
Moving away from gender to the horrific use by many of race to continue to sow divisions where none actually remain is equally troubling. The war against anything related to our white, male founders has reached the absurd and is now an all-out assault on whiteness itself. Instead of a view once held that children are born innocent with no racist tendencies, viewing racism properly as a learned behavior, we are now hearing the message that being white means you are automatically racist and that anything valued in our country's white history or tradition is undesirable and racist itself. The Smithsonian's Museum of African American History and Culture had a display. It was taken down after serious criticism, but it made it all too clear that when the left uses the code words white or white supremacy, it is not actually race that is being discussed, but America and American values. So what are these white values? According to the Smithsonian, keep in mind this is your tax dollars at work, the following are, quote, aspects and assumptions of whiteness. And this isn't the entire list. Rugged individualism, which means you are independent, self-reliant, and able to control your environment, is apparently an aspect of whiteness. Family structure, namely the traditional nuclear family, with the man as head of household and children with their own rooms to nurture independence, also white. Emphasis on the scientific method. Where's the party of science on this one? This includes objective, rational, linear thinking and understanding cause and effect relationships. Can we stop here and point out that teaching other races that there is no cause and effect may be the very problem underlying issues with difference in outcomes and success by population? How can any race or culture succeed without awareness of cause and effect? A focus on European and Western civilization. Here I can accept and strongly endorse that we should learn of all world history, but it most certainly is the case that Western history, since it led to the formation of this country, is going to be dominant. It's what you needed to know about who we are and where we came from. A Protestant work ethic. This aspect of whiteness is described as, quote, hard work is the key to success, work before play, and if you didn't meet your goals, you didn't work hard enough, end quote. I don't see a problem here, do you? Judeo-Christian traditions, which this display claim provides for no acceptance of other religions, That's an interesting concept since our white founders intentionally protected a freedom to exercise whatever religion you chose. Future-oriented, such that whiteness apparently is what causes you to plan for the future and not to need instant gratification. The display also states literally that this aspect includes a view that progress is always best. Um, seriously? Should we regress instead? Valuing time, also a white thing. Time is a commodity and schedule should be followed. Time exists, and it goes on whether you like it or not, and you only have so much of it. I'm not sure what motive underlies an attempt to convince any part of our society that time is not valuable. Aesthetics. Steak and potatoes, Barbie as the ideal woman, wealth for men as a, as a sign of progress and success. I can tell you no matter your race or background, these are issues that plague us all. Who hasn't wondered how others perceive them and at times thought themselves to come up short to these ideals? We all know they're not real. Holidays are apparently all Christian and serve the preferences of only those who are white and male. Justice. Apparently that our justice system is based on British common law, which focuses on the protection of property and requires intent for conviction of crimes, is somehow a bad system. Instead of just making that claim, I'd like someone to point out what other system would be proposed that would be any more just and fair. No one has yet come up with one, so I think I'm going to stick with ours. And competition. Competition is apparently bad. We've known this since society started handing out participation trophies and claiming effort was more important than results. 
that you're a winner if you actually lost. But this is not a good message to send anyone. Unless you think that only white people can suffer from evil whiteness, 2021 has ushered in a new idea, idea, multiracial whiteness. In all seriousness, and without a hint of sarcasm or satire, the Washington Post recently printed an article by Christina Beltran, a professor at NYU. Listen closely and tell me if you doubt bias on college campuses after this one. She attempted to explain the larger support for Trump by those of racial and ethnic minorities. Instead of trying to understand why these individuals, regardless of race or ethnicity, might vote for Trump, this professor, clearly not understanding anything about those who do not agree with her politically, could come to no other conclusion other than, wait for it, the only explanation is that they, despite not being white, really are white or are striving to be white, and so have taken on the characteristics of racist white people. Here's some of the wisdom shared in this article. Multiracial whiteness reflects an understanding of whiteness as a political color and not simply a racial identity, a discriminatory worldview in which feelings of freedom and belonging are produced through the persecution and dehumanization of others. So apparently, now in addition to being born one gender, but with your true identity being another, you can also be born one race, but actually be another. Of course, this is the natural conclusion of the theories endorsed by the left on on identity. And we shouldn't be surprised now to see claims that certain people are not actually identifying as their own race when they stray from the liberal message and agenda, but have clearly morphed into another race. Does anyone remember Joe Biden saying, if you were black and didn't vote for him, you ain't black? Here again, we've strayed so far from Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream of a colorblind society that this article merely seeks to classify these individuals based on race. The entire premise of the article is a disbelief that minority voters could actually think for themselves and have differences of opinion with other members of their racial group. Had Ms. Beltran actually interviewed some of these voters, she may have learned some policy reasons upon which they supported one candidate over the other without reference to race. Perhaps, and this may be a novel concept to Ms. Beltran, individuals, especially minorities, voted for Trump for the same reasons we all vote, self-interest. The economy, the rise in wages for minorities, the issues surrounding immigration, which are often key issues for Latino voters who entered this country legally, but like the rest of us, face the negative effects of the entry of illegal immigrants. Or perhaps minorities are starting to realize that the left has paid lip service to improving conditions, only to see conditions in minority neighborhoods worsen, not improve under Democratic leadership. But Beltran does not stop there. She further explains the following. Multiracial whiteness promises Latino Trump supporters freedom from the politics of diversity and recognition. For voters who see the very act of acknowledging one's racial identity as itself racist, the politics of multiracial whiteness reinforces their desired approach to colorblind individualism. Can there be any doubt at this point that Martin Luther King Jr.'s colorblind society is no longer the goal? The surprising thing here is that statements like this are made as a negative but that these Trump supporters don't want to be identified by their race, but as individuals, should be viewed as a positive. And whether talking race or gender or whatever new group identity may be next, the left seeks more and more to try to convince individuals to succeed not on their individual uniqueness, but on the sameness of and membership in some preferred group. But why? How does one motivate others to join a specific group rather than remain a member of an entire American community, essentially to self-segregate? How it has always been done, with the us versus them battle cry. For the left, the us is anyone who identifies as something other than white and other than male, or those white men and women who, due to their own white guilt, apologize for their own race. 
In addition, the us versus them goes back further to the early and continuing democratic policies of luring votes from certain communities by the creation of social programs that served to make groups, namely minorities and the poor, dependent upon the government. Once dependent, they can be more easily controlled and convinced that the only way to continue to survive is to keep voting for these now necessary entitlements and those who promise them or suffer sure ruin. And they can then be sold the lie, the us versus them lie, that the reason for their lack of success is membership in a particular group. This is at the heart of identity politics. Various individuals within these targeted groups have realized the true negative result these liberal programs have actually had. And they've tried to educate people on the fact that the minority vote for certain policies is not in the minority community's best interest. From Shelby Steele to Thomas Sowell to Candace Owens to David Rubin and others, a number of determined members of these, quote, favored groups of the left have spoken about why the politics of identity and the programs implemented to ingrain it into our national consciousness are only serving to hurt the very groups the left claims to be protected by these efforts. Affirmative action, for example, is both racist and doomed to failure. You cannot force people to accept one another by allowing less qualified individuals to succeed over more qualified ones based simply on race. Such practices are harmful to both the majority and the very minorities they seek to benefit. And we are now learning some interesting things about the true effects of affirmative action. First, that many of those who are hired or admitted under these policies fail because they didn't actually meet the standards necessary for entry into them. And Asian American groups are being negatively impacted, with Asian American students starting to sue numerous prestigious universities due to policies that exclude them from admission, despite being better qualified than other students who are admitted, simply because the school has already met their quota for Asian American students and now needs to fill those slots with with another preferred racial group. How can one justify better treatment for one racial group over another as a means of correcting past discrimination? We often hear the saying that hate cannot beat out hate. That doesn't seem to be what's being followed here. And it's certainly true of discrimination, that discrimination is not eradicated by more discrimination. This falls into the school-aged children's lesson of two wrongs simply do not make a right. And nothing has caused more harm to the African-American community and other minority communities than certain welfare programs that not only don't support traditional families, but actually encourage, through financial incentives, the breakdown of them. As Thomas Sowell explained, the breakdown in the African-American family cannot be set at the feet of racism. Quote, The black family survived centuries of slavery and generations of Jim Crow where most black children grew up in homes with two parents, end quote. And it's not just African-American communities that have been negatively impacted. Divorce rates in the incident of fatherless homes has increased, especially in minority communities, on a timeline that is not coincidentally tied to the enactment of key entitlement programs that provided these financial incentives to homes with a single mother versus an intact nuclear family. It is those families, more of whom are sadly found in our minority communities, who have no father, who statistically are much more likely to live in poverty and to find themselves embroiled in the criminal justice system. And this higher crime rate is the underlying cause of greater police interactions for these populations. Where one side of the political spectrum is now promoting the message that traditional values are nothing more than codes for or cover for whiteness or institutionalized white supremacy, there is little hope these communities will be encouraged to repair the damage done. This messaging is a disservice to all races who through history have had strong values of family and hard work. 
What claims of diversity and recognition only of identity accomplish is to convince those who are tricked into grouping themselves, this self-segregation, that they are better off being judged by their identity than by their own individual worth. And once separated into groups, you can convince them of all kinds of things, since they no longer have the wealth of experience that comes from interacting with people of different backgrounds, beliefs, and experiences. Here is where George Orwell was, again, sadly prophetic, explaining that when the government succeeds in controlling the message, it can convince you of nearly anything, including that war is peace, freedom is slavery. And by isolating us into different identities, it's easier to garner this control. And it's here I posit that diversity for diversity's sake serves no noble purpose, other than this more sinister goal of control over groups. But diversity of qualified people and ideas serves a very honorable goal, to reach the right decisions, to do the right thing, to get the job done, to reward those who work hard. But diversity just to claim diversity is pointless and possibly harmful. Diversity comes naturally if you select people for certain jobs, roles in the community, and for association based on individual worth and values without consideration of group identity. Don't get me wrong, America's diversity is one of her greatest strengths, but it is a strength that comes from allowing people from diverse backgrounds, races, religions, and experiences to come together to support a unified American culture and future. What today's identity politics does is just the opposite. It is not unifying, but dividing. So why do so many go along with it? Here we have no choice but to return to the cancel culture we explored last episode. People are now afraid to speak out, to question this new thinking to stand by American values, because to do so may result in backlash that can destroy a person, destroy personal relationships, businesses, and reputations. We are all becoming more like those insecure teenage girls who embrace gender dysphoria as a way to fit in. Most of us don't want to draw attention to ourselves, and this group identity, groupthink world that is developing, allows us to be all too ready to just fade into the background and hope things turn out okay. But it's not okay. A basis for a lot of today's identity politics can be found in critical race theory, a hallmark of identity politics. This theory, and many like it, seek to identify more and more oppressed groups who can claim victim status and a claimed entitlement to some sort of compensation for their suffering. But it serves no real purpose other than to present a false theory and use it to cause resentment of each other. The belief in oppression of certain groups, though once an actual and horrible reality, is now a falsehood that certainly doesn't actually come from the system itself, which in its actual laws and structure is an amazing thing of equality. This false sense of oppression comes from the left's indoctrination of our younger populations, and some older persons who've bought into it as well. They've been taught to believe that despite themselves never having experienced any noted oppression, the system is still constantly somehow working against them, and thus a festering resentment begins to form in these otherwise privileged individuals, and the resentment turns into cries for justice for some wrong even they cannot identify. And this indoctrination is no more dangerous than how it is presented in the critical race theory being taught to school children, included in required training of many employees, and in the overall messaging of the news media. So what is critical race theory? First and foremost, it is a theory, an unproven, illogical, and unscientific theory. It's a means of segregation, a way not to bring groups together but to tear them further apart. It's a means of avoiding any real debate on issues of race and equality, and instead it makes claims of systemic racism as a basis for arguing for a destruction of the entire system. At its heart, critical race theory claims that you cannot ever end racism because one's very whiteness means that a person is, regardless of conduct or actual beliefs, racist if that person is white. 
And don't forget that it's not just white people who are racist, but also those multicultural racists who are not white, but apparently still support a white supremacist view because they want to be white. It is also right out of the communist playbook, divide and conquer, create schisms where none really exist in order to pit one group against the other, turning neighbor against neighbor where prior to the imposition of these kinds of theories, no animosity actually existed. It is Karl Marx's class consciousness. What good could ever come from ingraining a class consciousness in a person who, prior to your teachings, did not see differences or distinctions, but saw only individuals? Well, by convincing us that no matter what we do, we are a number of different unblendable groups provides the basis to overturn entire systems. But is it, but is it based in any reality? Take for a minute the current perceived state of race relations in recent years. In 2016, a Rasmussen poll reported that 60% of Americans viewed race relations as having gotten worse since President Obama was elected. Contrary to claims that this, in and of itself, proves some kind of continued racism, the poll of likely voters is the same group of voters who overwhelmingly elected Barack Obama president twice. Instead, it is because Obama embraced erroneous histories of America and accepted and implemented training on concepts like critical race theory that caused a deterioration in race relations. Karl Marx and Joseph Stalin would be proud. Indeed, a review of Gallup polls on race relations from earlier years shows this shift. From 2001 to 2008, of those polled, with only minor differences between the responses of white and black poll participants, about 70% viewed the situation with race relations as somewhat or very good in this country. But by 2020, the responses had fallen significantly, with only 46% of white participants viewing race relations as very or somewhat good, and only 36% of black participants viewing it in that way. What caused this decline? I would say to you it is this very identity politics and teaching such as critical race theory that pits one group against the other that has caused this decline in our view of each other. Can we expect any other result than distrust and resentment between these divided groups if they are constantly told the other groups despise them and only seek to oppress them? Rather than try to return us to a more peaceful racial acceptance, President Biden is taking steps to reaffirm a commitment to critical race theory, a theory that actually undermines our very governmental structure and institutions, and to cast aside attempts by prior administrations to return our appreciation of history to one of recognition of the greatness of our founders and instill that these institutions are good and the most just and fair in the world. The near-immediate cancellation of the 1776 Commission is just one such example. The 1776 Commission simply sought to return teachings about our actual founders and the unique goodness of America to its rightful place as compared to all other governmental creations, past or present. America is the finest government and country. And it is this division and adherence to falsehoods about our country that leads to mistaken beliefs with horrific results in systemic racism in all organizations, including, perhaps most obviously in recent times, law enforcement. One cannot tackle identity politics without discussing the anti-police movement and the claims of systemic racism in law, law enforcement. These movements, for lack of a better word, are all based in falsehoods about our current system. And it is here the media and various elites pushing identity politics and its companion critical race theory have done the most damage. Let me start again by saying that racism is abhorrent, and when that racism is accompanied by an abuse of power, by being perpetrated by someone like a law enforcement officer, it is completely unacceptable. And it is unacceptable to nearly all other law enforcement officers. Just ask them. And by all citizens. 
But the real issue is not any systemic racism, but the decay caused by leftist policies of the past six decades or more, which have served to dumb down Americans' children, break up America's families, especially in minority communities, and remove feelings of personal responsibility that such crime permeates, permeates many of our cities and causes minority communities to have far more interactions with our police and law enforcement. It's from these policies that we've had to confront higher crime rates in minority neighborhoods. And where there is higher crime, there is greater interaction with police. And where there is more interaction, there are more chances for mistakes, and yes, even intentional bad acts by rogue police officers. In most years, nearly half of all murder victims are black, and more than 90% of those were murdered by a member of their own race. That fact is not unusual. Most violent crime is perpetrated on the victim by someone of the victim's own race. But the large percentage of actual murdered African-American and other minorities is a problem. And a review of history shows that it's only when policies such as LBJ's Great Society and the decades of bad liberal policies following it were in place that these communities began this decline into poverty and crime. The timing is not mere coincidence. But what are the real numbers on police violence? In 2018, there were 998 deadly force incidents involving police. Of those, 95.3% were of individuals who were armed. That left only 47 unarmed people killed in interactions with police. Of those, 23 were white, 18 were black, and 6 were Hispanic. And of those incidents, non-lethal force was first attempted in a majority of them prior to an officer's decision to use lethal force. And those 47 people are out of more than 50 million contacts that year between police and citizens. In 2019, the numbers were similar. There no doubt is a disparity between representation in the population and interactions with the police when it comes to race. And there is no doubt that, as with anywhere, there are some incidents of racism. But with a country of more than 300 million people, that only 47 individuals had interactions with police where they were unarmed, not the police, the individual, that resulted in the death, is a remarkable success of law enforcement. Even when considering those individuals who were armed, the total death figure of 998 with a country as large as the United States is also an incredibly small number. So claims that, the, that racism is systemic and widespread in law enforcement are simply not accurate and only serve to fan the flames of discontent. It's also worth pointing out here that anytime there is an incident that's publicized of lethal or excessive force by police, if the police officer is of a different race than the person who he interacted with, the assumption is that racism was the motivator. It is never considered that there are other possible motiva motivations for the police officer's actions, some good and some bad, but they don't necessarily mean that racism was the motivating factor. The great lie in exploitation of those few sad events where law enforcement acts in error and that they represent some racial animosity and risk to the safety of our communities is doing damage and risking the security of our communities. From defunding or reducing funding for police in the very communi communities where they're most needed, to stigmatizing police officers as yet another group, but this time to be viewed with disdain, even when those officers include individuals of all genders and races, is yet again only a means to divide us over issues, issues that don't actually exist in any real way. Why have so many been convinced, not only that the deck is stacked against them, but that their best course of action is not to become more American, to melt into that great melting pot, but to separate from it and give more importance to things that divide us? Because they're being sold this lie day in and day out by our news media, our educational institutions, and our entertainment in industry. Discourse and discontent sell. Happiness and unity don't. 
Don't fall for these lies. Don't fall into the categories of trying to separate yourself from your neighbors. We are all Americans. Once viewed as a positive description of America's unique way to take in so many of so many different races, national origins, and backgrounds, the view of America as a melting pot of cultures is now viewed with disdain. But if there is no melting pot for those who call this country home, what can it possibly mean to be American? And around what principles could we possibly ever hope to unify? Many articles have been written in recent years claiming the melting pot theory to be outdated and not a proper view of America. And to the extent that any view of the country as a melting pot requires individuals to give up their own heritage to become American, I would agree it is an incorrect understanding of what it means to be American. But what cannot be ignored is that to be a unified country, we must share basic principles. And it's those basic principles that are brewed in our melting pot. Today, those basic principles are under attack and targeted with allegations of themselves being sexist, racist, and otherwise discriminatory and oppressive. Surely being American is not segregating into different identity groups, nor is it American to turn one group against another, whether it's turning society against police, race against race, gender against gender, religion against religion, or whatever the next trending group identity is to break against the traditional values of the country. The only result of identity politics is to turn us against one another. Sadly, the left has been slowly, and in recent days not so slowly, doing just that. And when they run out of groups to separate out from the community, they create new groups and encourage more dangerous behaviors, often targeting our children, in order to make already insecure young people feel a need to identify with this new popular identity. None of these actions do anything but tribalize America in such a way that unity cannot be accomplished, and we can no longer speak to our neighbors about our differences to find common ground, but are instead stuck on our own islands of identity with no bridge to a shared experience as a nation. Thank you, as always, for taking the time to listen. The purpose of this podcast is not to seek agreement with all I have said, but to continue to commit to a dialogue that hopes to return us to a place of a unified America and to return us to a society where we are all judged on the content of our character. But until we can stop this trend of identifying ourselves by different group affiliations, stop the tribalization of America, we can never hope to be reunified around the primary goals and traditions of our country. Next week, I will delve into the separation of powers established by the founders and their attempt to avoid any concentration of power in one branch of government to explore the use of executive orders, their history, the questionable use of them in recent years, and the issues raised by attempts of any president unilaterally to change laws and policies without use of the proper procedures set out in our Constitution. As I do at the end of each episode, let's consider another valuable insight from Alexis de Tocqueville, especially in the light of the left's move towards socialism or worse and its embracing of the very tactics of groupthink and group consciousness that creates rifts in the community to grab more and more power from the people through cultural division. De Tocqueville noted, Democracy and socialism have nothing in common but one word, equality, but notice the difference. While democracy seeks equality and liberty, Socialism seeks equality in restraint and servitude. Until next time, stay free, be brave, stay safe, search for truth, and God bless America. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to share the podcast with others who may enjoy and need to hear it. If you wish to help the podcast continue, you can contribute your support by going to anchor.fm backslash solace hyphen veritas and clicking the support button. 
The Defending American Exceptionalism podcast is written and produced by Solis Veritas. Original music by Canticum Octar. Special thanks to Mor- Morales Acceptor. Copyright 2021.